Hello and welcome back to TRSI, The Right Side here. I'm Michael Dwyer and tonight I am really genuinely happy. I know I always say that tonight I'm really excited to introduce to you Professor uh, Glenn Lowry. Correct. Like the painter. Uh, he is a very prominent uh, United, uh, economist in the United States, Professor of, Econo uh, of Economics at Brown University. Uh, at 33, the youngest ever African-American to be a Harvard tenured professor at Harvard. Um, a brilliant career. And today, probably, maybe, I don't know, ironically, or not best known for his always fascinating and enlightening conversations with uh, Professor John McWhorter, linguist in Columbia. John is in Columbia, isn't he? Columbia University, New York City. And I would absolutely say to everybody, Look up loggingheads.com and go and look for The Glenn Show. Uh, your time will be well spent. Professor Lowry, uh, I'm just going to give you three things that have happened in the last week or so in, in Ireland. Um, in the context of the idea that I think that Americans don't often understand, while the United States is obviously a political superpower, that it is still the great global cultural superpower as well and that what happens in the United States has a massive effect potentially on the social and cultural life around the world. So three things, connected, unconnected. One was an Irish politician, a councillor, uh, proposed at a council meeting that to kill a mockingbird and of mice and men should be removed from the school syllabus and all other books that contain, sim that similarly contain language of a certain kind, containing certain kinds of racial epithets should also be removed because uh, of they were offensive and not suitable for children. Also this week, Dublin's most iconic hotel, the Shelburne Hotel built in 1824, has removed from the, in front of it four bronze statues which have been there since 1867, which are representative of two uh, pharaonic Nubian princesses and two handmaidens. This was done, the, the hotel is owned by the Marriott Group, which is an American group. And they were under the mistaken belief that two of the handmaidens were slave girls. And they said in the context of what's going on today, they felt it wasn't appropriate, perhaps, for these statues to be in front of their hotel. And lastly, uh, two sociologists and criminologists published on the news website of the National Broadcaster an essay asking what we could learn from the defund the police uh, activity going on at the moment in the United States. The essay concluded with a paragraph which I'll read to you, just this last sentence. To return then to Foucault, could we imagine a vision of justice that does not include punishment, but rather the elimination of the conditions that give rise to injustice in the first place? Professor Lowry, your reaction. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I'm amazed. Uh, each of these is different in its own way, I suppose. Uh, the book burners, because it's the N-word, I assume it's the N-word that uh, can't be tolerated. Um, the, the iconoclast who want to take down the statuary, uh, because though in reference to events of thousands of years ago, yes. nevertheless, they could be read by the ignorant who are themselves unaware of these thousands year old events in an offensive way. Um, 
And what was the last? Uh, remind me. Uh, the last was the, the the sociologists who were saying that we could learn from the defund the police. Oh, defund the police, the Foucauldian yeah. uh, argument that uh, we could we could manage the enormous problem of social control uh, through uh, some means other than those that would impose cost on on people who violate our rules. And and what am I to make of this? Now I assume this is of the moment. This is the moment of the. Uh, Black Lives Matter insurgency, if you will, here in the United States of the uprising of uh, protest about uh, anti-Black racism. And uh, the, I, the first thing I take from you telling me this, there you sit in Ireland, is that the American disease here, quote unquote, is, is contagious. Uh, it, it spreads across borders uh, relatively easily. I don't know what your racial history in Ireland might be, um, I'm wondering about the composition of the population. I would imagine that it's mostly homogeneous well, and so-called European or white. I don't know. You have immigrants. Uh, yeah. I, I, when I can briefly, I would say that until around 20 years ago, um, it was an absolute, it was, <sighs> the I, diversity in Ireland meant white Protestant instead of white Catholic, being from Scotland at, not, as opposed to being from Ireland. That was diversity. Right now, we actually have the highest percentage of a population which is not native born in the OECD, on 17%. However, that is, again, pretty well all, the, the, the great bulk of that is Northern European, Polish, Lithuanian, Russian. Around 2% of the population, I think, would be classified as persons of color. The single largest non-European ethnic group, I think, would probably would be uh, Chinese, and then also quite a large Brazilian population. Ah, but it's anyway, I was homogeneous. Yeah, I'm sorry. I was I was just on my way in summary to uh, marveling at uh, the the spread across the national boundary of this uh, of this kind of sensibility. Uh, on the specific instances, I I think it's uh, gratuitously deferential to the sensibilities of the descendants of the slaves to butcher literature um, uh, on behalf of a, a project of, uh, what is it, mind control? We, we don't want people, these words were written and they were spoken. Uh, uh, of mice and men? Yes. Uh, my God, uh, that's Steinbeck. That's, that's uh, you know, uh, so, I'm not sure exactly what is being accomplished. There's a kind of anachronistic aspect to this uh, to this policing. It imposes backward onto those events already transpired uh, a vision that is uh, that is uh, of our time that that doesn't relate to that. So I I'm, I would be against it personally. I would I would be appalled by it. I don't know how people who um, argue themselves as liberals with a small L, as, as defenders of liberty and an open society could tolerate uh, uh, such uh, censorship. It's censorship. What else is it? Um, the basis, now, the, yeah. one of the things that's driving this is, and this is a notion that's been discussed increasingly in Irish news media outlets, is the notion that Irish society, and again, I'm not asking about the Irish, but Americans, if it, it's true. Irish society is institutionally and systemically racist, okay? And this is marrying the belief that the United States is 
as a society is institutionally and systemically racist. And that all series of programs are going to be necessary to root out that disease that, that is at the heart and the canker of the... So how do you, how do you feel about the, the, the premise, the first premise that the United States is in systemically and institutionally racist? I understand why people say it. I think it's wrong. I mean, I should not hesitate to say, I believe that thesis is historically inaccurate. Um, and I think it's ironic that it should be the rallying cry of a movement for reform because the appeal of the reformers is to the very system that they allege to be intrinsically and irreparably racist. So it's almost a self-refuting appeal. If the premise of intrinsic and systemic racism is accurate, then the effort to encourage a conversation at a national level or a political effort uh, to reform the system based upon uh, the allegation that it's racist presupposes the system capable of acting in a way that's not racist, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's that. Uh, but I mean, I think the history of the United States <laughs> warts and all, and I include the history of the enslavement of the Africans within that, uh, is a much more hopeful and affirmative account. It's, it's, it's in fact, this is what I say often when I'm asked about slavery, I say slavery is a commonplace in human history going back to antiquity. The new idea is the abolition of slavery. The new idea is the moral position of the absolute abomination of slavery, and then the political institutions capable of putting into law and practice that moral commitment. Now that didn't happen in a single day anywhere, anywhere on the planet, it did not happen overnight. It happened as a result of the evolution of institutions and national sensibilities in specific places with particular histories. The United States is one of those places. A bloody civil war was fought. Over half a million were slain in the context of that war. The war was transformative. It evolved a new definition of the meaning of the nation. The descendants of slaves were incorporated in the fullness of time, yes, fitfully, yes, in fits and starts, one foot forward, one back, two forward, one back, etc. But in the fullness of time, it uh, was uh, uh, the the uh, the incorporation of the descendants of slaves into the body politic was accomplished. That's a remarkable historical feat. It does not absolve the society of its wrongdoings, which are many, or uh, you know, it doesn't establish that the current dispensation is the best of all possible worlds. But it certainly, I think, flies in the face of the claim that the country is intrinsically racist. Intrinsically racist countries don't have the particular history that I think you can ascribe to the United States. And I'm only now talking about the status of African-Americans within the polity. I'm not talking about defeating fascism in two world wars or standing down the Soviet Union in a, uh, in a global uh, conflict over uh, you know, the uh, uh, framework for uh, for uh, political economic development on the planet, I, I think there's a lot very affirmative to be said. <laughs> and again, I'll stop. Where else would I go? Here I am. I'm an American. Where would I imagine, looking at the globe, that my prospects would be better? Uh, everyone is uh, uh, beset with uh, one or another kind of, uh, you know, social deformity or 
imposition or whatever, I, you know, so, so the, that's my view. Uh, uh, it's, it's, uh, no, you said that on the, the whole a good place. Yeah. You, you, you advert to the fact that the, the recognition of the, of those rights and the, it has been fitful. And yeah. okay. The emancipation happens. Perhaps the great tragedy of emancipation is that again, as somebody I said, I, I, I read recently said, is the, the American story is about the failure to live up to it, America to live up to itself. So in Plessy, the, the great tragedy is that Plessy happens, that Harlan's descent isn't, isn't listened to. Although I think the interesting thing, and I want to come on to this, Harlan makes the argument, the statement that the, the Republic is colorblind that men and women in the Republic maybe are not. And Harlan is pretty obviously a racist himself. I mean, the statements he makes, particularly, I think about Chinese or Japanese people in, in, the, in, the, in the statement are to a modern ear offensive. But he makes the point that the law is, needs to be colorblind. There has been a, a two-pronged approach, I suppose, historically to the advancement, the material advancement of African-Americans. One has been through politics and one advocating an advancement, shall we say, through culture. I know that certain things had to happen legally. Uh, the, the civil rights, Jim Crow laws had to be, had to be dis deconstructed. The actual application of equality had to be introduced in law for that to happen. But have we reached a point where the, where I know Thomas Sowell would make this argument. You're placing your faith in the wrong, on putting your bet on the wrong horse, if you think that politics is ultimately going to be bring you to the place of material betterment as a complete people, that while you have this, and also I, I, I don't want to diminish either, that there has been massive, in the 20th century, massive leap forwards in the African-American community at a material level as well, and the growth of a very significant oh, yes. middle class. Oh, it's extraordinary. Um, Gunnar Myrdal, the Swedish economist, uh, Nobel uh, uh, Prize winner, um, his book is called An American Dilemma. Uh, it's published in the 1940s, and it's a comprehensive survey, uh, quantitative and qualitative, of the status of the Negro, as they said in those days, in the United States. Um, I think the modal occupation for black men in his data was farm laborer. I think that more than half of the women, African-American women who were employed, worked as domestic servants. Um, I think he finds family incomes amongst blacks in the range of 30 to 40% at the median of the family incomes among whites. He finds vast professional occupations in which there's essentially no in medicine and law and so on, uh, in the engineering, in the academy, in which there's no meaningful African-American presence. Um, he finds attitudes that are uh, uh, condemnatory and contemptuous of African-Americans uh, widely throughout the South of the United States. Um, he finds uh, large uh, numbers of African-Americans who are not able to participate in the political process uh, because, in effect, they've been deprived of the right to vote. This is um, 80 years ago. 
If you look today, uh, the population of Blacks is about uh, 40 million. Um, the per capita income is on the order of, of African Americans is on the order of magnitude, if I get this right, of about $25,000 per year per person. Um, that is more with 40 million people than twice the gross domestic product of Nigeria that has 200 million people. Right. One fifth the people, twice the gross income. We're 10 times richer on average here in the United States than the typical Nigerian. Um, you have a vast middle class of professional uh, uh, people here in the United States and in just about every walk of life. Uh, you have seen recently uh, an African-American service uh, commander in chief and uh, head of state of the United States of America, the most powerful person on the planet for eight years. Um, you have a culture that is uh, extremely powerful at a global level. I'm talking about in the arts, I'm talking about in uh, entertainment, I'm talking about in sports. And African-Americans are dominant in these venues of American life. Mm -hmm. uh, you have uh, at least one of the political parties that has committed itself to the basic, uh, you know, aspirational narrative of African-American activists in terms of, of the positions that they take on policy questions. So uh, this has all happened within my lifetime. Uh, this is an amazing transformation. Black Americans are the most powerful and wealthiest people in large numbers of African descent on the planet. That's happened within the last century. Uh, of course, the jails have too many in them and they are disproportionately black. And of course, there are, uh, there are incidents and there are circumstances and there are problems and there are legitimate concerns. But these are, in my mind, looking at the broad history of its second order effects second order relative to the basic trend line, which is a line of increasing prosperity and inclusion for African-Americans within the American political economy. Um, the other thing I want to comment on, Michael, briefly is uh, your uh, evocation of Thomas Sowell and his arguments that uh, relying on politics is uh, not the most effective instrument for African-American empowerment. I agree with that. Um, now, there are some things that you can only accomplish through politics. Unequal citizenship is one of them. A Voting Rights Act, a right, uh, a, a, a law that says you can't discriminate by race in employment or in credit or in housing. These are things that you can only accomplish through the legislature and you need political support to do that. That's what the Civil Rights Movement's great victory uh, was. But there are also some things that cannot be accomplished through politics. Uh, or that are only crudely approximated when politics is a substitute. For example, raising your children. Now, this is something that people are reluctant to talk about, but uh, the majority of children born to a black woman are born to a woman without a husband here in the United States. It's almost, uh, it's, it's uh, uh, two thirds, in fact. Um, the question arises as to what that's only the tip of the iceberg. That's only a superficial statistical representation of a much more complex reality. Of course, it could be true that the nurturance and development of the children could be every bit as robust 
even in a society in which men and women didn't marry before they gave birth to children. That's not beyond one's imagining. On the other hand, it could also be true that whatever the supportive institutions and nurturing connections would have to be, it takes a village to raise a child, whatever they would have to be in order to substitute for the effectiveness of a two-parent household might be missing in a community. And the youngsters in those communities might be deprived of the full potential of their human possibility by those cultural and familial circumstances. If that were the case, if it were the case that family structure played a role in perpetuating African-American disadvantage for many youngsters, played a role in the large number of young black men whose antisocial behavior causes them to find themselves in trouble with the police. If it were true that 48 hours of parenting time in a household every day was twice as many as 24 hours of time and it made a difference, that two people with the capacity to bring a paycheck were therefore more effective as a household in providing resources to their children. If it were true that adolescent boys really needed male models of discipline and of rectitude in order to find their own path forward behaviorally into, if that were true, then the consequence of the family structure would be a profound impediment to Black participation. And politics is not going to solve that. But Okay, I, I've heard a, a prominent uh, Irish social scientist recently discussing the the issue of uh, intactness of the, or lack of intactness of the African American family, and he stated as a simple as a fact that this goes back to the destructive effect of slavery on the family. But I know Herbert Gutman, for example, in his book on the her and and Gutman, I, I mentioned Gutman specifically because he's a Marxist as opposed to Soul, and Gutman's argument seems to me to well researched anyway, I'm not a scientist, I'm not in your position, that the, the, the black family for at least three generations after emancipation is, is intact. And if we start yeah, either disintegration, it's in, it's, they survived even the first wave of the migration to the north. What, what's your take on that? Oh, no, I, I'm not a historian, but I remember very well the impact of Herbert Gutman's book, The Black Family and Slavery and Freedom, when it was published uh, probably 35 or more years ago. Um, and uh, I know the argument, I know the data that he amasses. He looks at Freedmen Bureau records and he finds there were large numbers of African-American families in effect, husbands and wives, some of whom had been separated during the Holocaust of slavery, who sought then with the administration of the Freedmen's Bureau to reunite their families. And he looks at census data for American cities and is able to establish that the incidence of teenage birth and of out of wedlock birth is really quite low, historically speaking, amongst African-Americans in the late 19th and early 20th century in the South and in the industrializing North. Um, so the, the widening gap between black and white here in the United States in terms of out of wedlock birth is a post 1950s phenomenon. It's a phenomenon that you don't see even in the early part of the 20th century. When uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, the late Yes. Uh, American senator and public intellectual who uh, produced a report in the 1960s lamenting the status of the Negro family. He called it the Negro family, the case for national action, in which he was sounding an alarm. 
he was looking at 20 to 25% of the uh, births to black women being to women unmarried. Uh, we're now talking about two thirds or more. Um, so it's simply not true that uh, the um, status of the African-American family in the year 2020 uh, can be understood as a consequence of the depredations as significant as they were of slavery uh, in, in a, a century ago or more. Uh, in fact, we were healthier in that respect uh, a century ago than we, are, than we are today. I know some commentators believe that the changes in the welfare system in the 1960s had a, very, had a negative impact. To what extent do you buy into that? Uh, I buy into it to a significant extent. It's a controversial argument. It's a political argument about the welfare state, about the extent of uh, benefits to low-income families. And uh, Charles Murray, uh, the uh, political scientist, uh, social scientist. Wicked Charles uh, author, Murray. The Wicked Charles Murray, author of The Bell Curve with uh, uh, Richard Herrnstein, a book about intelligence and social class, which got a lot of people upset because he looked into racial differences and IQ performance, and he linked that to some degree to genetic processes. This very same Charles Murray, he may be right or wrong about that, but he's not wrong about everything, writes a book in uh, the late in the mid-1980s called Losing Ground, in which he makes explicit this argument that the incentives from transfer programs encourage people not to take the actions that were necessary for them to be independent, that they became dependent on the welfare check coming, that the government in effect replaced the father as the main breadwinner in any of these households, that women who wanted to be independent from their parents at the age of 16, 17, or 18 were incentivized to have children uh, because they knew that that would allow them to claim benefits of income and housing and health care and so on, food stamps and things of this kind. He, he argued this, uh, to which the um, liberal academic establishment responded uh, very negatively, questioning his data and his logic. Um, I think Murray wasn't perfect, and he made, you know, he cut some corners, and he made some surmises that may have extended beyond his data. But I think if you look historically, there's a pretty good case, especially with respect to African-American society that some of what he argued actually did take place. By the way, this doesn't completely resolve the problem, the political problem of would you want to provide those benefits or not, because if you withheld those benefits, people would have suffered. There are trade-offs here, but that, that policy regime, especially in its liberality, uh, the extent to which it became quite easy for people to claim benefits and so forth, and indeed to which it became a political cause celeb to advocate on behalf of them getting benefits with little or no restriction. It wasn't until the mid 1990s when Bill Clinton collaborated with Newt Gingrich and uh, enacted the uh, welfare reform uh, legislation uh, in 1996 uh, that we began to back away from and put requirements and restrictions on eligibility of uh, poor families. So yeah, I think it played a role. Not the only thing for sure, but it surely I think it played a role. I just on, on the subject of Murray, I think in, in Coming Apart, he, he returned. Yes. I saw a very interesting discussion with Murray uh, talking to, his name escapes him now, he wrote that very fine book, Bowling Alone. That would be Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam. Putnam, not a conservative 
No, yeah. not at all. Not at all. But the two of them had an hour and a half conversation of talking about the, the, and coming together on a lot of the stuff and the nature, the loss of social capital and, uh, and I suppose the recognition that certain kinds of human institutions are fragile and when they start to break down and fray, there are costs and perhaps unexpected costs that, we did, that, that occur. Things go wrong and when they start to go wrong, it's very hard to fix. Um, I like the uh, analogy, you can pull on a thread and unravel the fabric. But once unraveled, pushing on the thread does you no good. You cannot put Humpty Dumpty back together again. <laughs> that, is, that is very, very true. So, uh, yes. To go back, I suppose, because this is something that I know that our listeners will, will want to hear you talk about is the, the spark that starts this whole conversation in the intensity in which it is occurring goes back to the death of Mr. Floyd. Yes. This is the spark that, 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 that begins this, that begins, starts this conflagration. Now, I, 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 nobody could watch that video and not be disturbed, horrified. Yeah. If nothing else, there is something deeply uncomfortable about seeing a fellow human being in extremis in those last moments and to know that, yeah. that it's, it's, it's a horrible thing. I thought he was interesting that at no stage did I notice anybody, shall we say, in authority, anybody in, even posing the question, do we actually have a reason to believe that this officer was behaving in this way because he was acting in a bad faith manner because of the race of the man he was assailing? That question was never asked. It was built into the, into the narrative that police that there is that, that the police are racist and that police violence like this against an African American man has a racist component. Am I am I wrong in that? Oh no, you're not wrong. And this is a point that I have made forcefully in the last uh, few weeks. Um, it happens that Derek Chauvin, the police officer who perpetrated this horrific event, I agree with you, it was very terrible. Uh, who was white, and George Floyd, the victim who was choked to death, was black. Those are facts. But the fact, that the supposition that the action of the police officer had something to do with the fact that he was white and that this victim was black was never in interrogated. There was no evidence brought to bear one way or the other about that. It was simply assumed that it must be true. Um, in fact, at some point, it didn't matter what the individual motives of the particular actor in the setting was. The event became iconic and representative of a more abstract and generalized uh, phenomenon, uh, which is the contempt for black bodies by the racist police. All these are in inverted commas. Okay. Uh, so that, uh, you know, now there will have to be a trial. Uh, the man has been accused of a crime. He will be held to account in one way or another. Evidence will be brought to bear. This is not the first case like this. There are many such cases. There was Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, killed by a police officer named Darren Wilson. Uh, there was Trayvon Martin in Sanford, Florida, killed by a civilian who was a neighborhood watch armed uh, guard um, named George Zimmerman. Uh, and. Uh, there are trials. A, a police officer in the Eric Garner case, this is New York City, 
where the chokehold was applied and the gentleman selling loose cigarettes ended up dead uh, as the police attempted to take him into custody. These, are, these events will eventually come to adjudication in a court of law and the court will have to answer the very question that you pose. But our political process and the so-called uprising um, and the herd mentality amongst many in the media to get behind a particular narrative doesn't trouble itself with those questions. And I find that to be very, very troubling. Uh, cities are burning because of an assumption about the answer to that question when no one has even bothered to bring evidence to bear pertinent uh, to it. I, I teach at a university. My president at this university sent around a dear colleague letter to every student, every alumnus, and every member of the faculty and the staff declaring that this incident exemplified hundreds of years of anti-Black racism in the society, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I was appalled by that, appalled because I won't dwell on this, but I'll just say, because the question that you raise is a question that I should be able to raise in my classroom with my students. Mm -hmm. I should be able to ask them, how do we know? What's the evidence? What does it matter that we make the assumption that we make here? But when the official structure of the university pronounces in advance about these matters as if they were uh, self-evident, it makes it very difficult to sustain any kind of critical discussion of them after the fact. But isn't it also, uh, I think it's a, sorry, it's not also very dangerous. I've been talking to a couple of lawyers, friends of mine in the United States, and their sense is that the, 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 the amount of study of the DA raised the tariff from manslaughter to second degree murder. And their sense is that this was done as under political pressure, but that they also have the sense that that this may be a tariff, this may be a which will be very hard to stick, and that he's risking a not guilty verdict, which could be potentially at the background of what you're talking about, where everybody has just said this is what this is. If a, a, a court comes back, a jury comes back with a not guilty verdict, that could be absolutely explosive. Absolutely, it could. That's how the 1992 rioting in Los Angeles after the Rodney King incident when the officers were acquitted. That's what set off that uh, horrible disturbance with billions of dollars of property destroyed and scores of people's lives lost. Uh, it's very serious business. You're playing with fire here. Uh, it's a tinderbox. So yes, creating those expectations. And of course, this, this is min, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota that we're talking about. But this kind of incident has happened in other places. In Baltimore, where the young man died in the back of a police vehicle as he was being transported under custody from injuries sustained in the vehicle, I assume. Uh, this is Freddie Gray. Um, with political pressure, or if you like, mob justice, the local prosecutors charged police officers involved with an array of crimes and they were all acquitted. They were all acquitted. Now there wasn't subsequent rioting in Baltimore after those particular police officers were acquitted, but this general modus operandi of uh, tout an incident as a racial atrocity without evidence, uh, mobilized the criminal justice system on behalf of a demand for justice from the black community, uh, confront a jury which is constrained by law to examine the objective evidence <coughs> and not your mythic <coughs> narrative, <coughs> and then finds the officers not guilty, uh, and then 
uh, it ends in tragedy with the not guilty verdict triggering resentment and anger throughout the community, which is expressed in terms of violent uh, civil disturbance. Uh, that's, a, that's a formula for disaster. I don't believe that anybody doubts that in any institution you will have, there will be racists. And I'm sure in the, in the police force, even though the, I think people forget it over here, the police force in the United States is city, county, state. It's a, it's a very diverse yeah. kind of force. There are tens but, of thousands of jurisdictions. Sure. However, if we address, if we go back to the issue about this institutional systemic racism, I mean, I, 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 I said to you before, there would be certainly a, a sense in Ireland that back in the, in the good old days, when every cop on the beach on the East Coast was a, was a mick, that these were, this was a bunch of racist people. And that it was, if you, if you, this was not a happy place to be if you come into an account, for an, if you were an African-American man encountering these people. But today, uh, you had a conversation, I, I want to get the man's name right, I think it was you, John Moskowitz, am I? Uh, Moskowitz. Cop on the beat? Oh, Moskowitz, yes, that, that's uh, Moskowitz. Peter. Peter Moskowitz. Oh, yeah, sorry. Cop, uh, he was, and, he, and this is in the context of another conversation you had with, uh, with, uh, with uh, Professor McWhorter, where he asked for the list. Yes. These are the white people who have died at the hands of police in manner very similar to those uh, incidents that have become iconic representatives of black mistreatment. Mm -hmm. For every case in which you find a black person being shot in the back as he runs away from the police officer, being shot in their own home as the police officer executes a warranted search and a conflict emerges, being choked to death by a chokehold that's too aggressive, being held down on the ground with the officer's knee on top of the person. Every single one of those cases for which a black victim can be found, cases can also be identified uh, where the same kind of thing has happened in whites or victims. This was Moscow's point and John McWhorter took that fact to be very important because whereas we interpret these events as if they only happen to black people and they are racial, the existence of white victims of similar behavior at least raises the possibility that sometimes when black people have been victimized, the cause has not been racial, but it's been bad policing or uh, whatever uh, that could affect anybody. The reason I, I raise this is not in a sense to try and move the goalposts and say, oh, it's not, a, it's not racism, but rather that if, if we don't understand the, correct, the causality of things, then we're never going to be in a position to fix them. If we're fixing the wrong thing, we're never going to fix the problem. Yeah, I agree with that. I think uh, in the case of policing, uh, the issues are universal, having to do with how officers are recruited and trained, with what are the rules of engagement that govern their behavior and how they are held accountable, uh, <coughs> the extent to which police departments, <coughs> for example, have to answer to communal you know, citizens review boards when the cases of this kind emerge. Uh, they, they are things that are about policing uh, not uh, mainly about race. Uh, I, I think I shouldn't ignore the fact, though, that the problem of overrepresentation of blacks amongst criminal offenders creates a policing situation in which suspicion may fall upon innocent black people purely because of the background circumstances in which 
the uh, police are dealing with crime. Yes. If you're if you're stopping a vehicle at a late hour <clears throat> in a uh, American city, there's so many guns, there's so much violence, and you see a driver is young, male, African American. The officer's estimation of the likelihood that this person is a threat to him and may be carrying a weapon is higher by the rational statistical inference that the population is not uniform with respect to the nature of the risk. So that will affect the way the officer deals with the situation. Officers are trained to deal with these situations without uh, violating the rights of citizens, regardless of whether the citizens are black or not. But officers are not perfect. And you just have to know that in a country of 330 million people, where there are many, 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 many tens of thousands of encounters between police and citizens daily, that uh, the fact of racial disparity in participation in crime is going to be reflected in a racial disparity in the kinds of incidents that cause people so much concern. Uh, I don't know how I can say that without seeming to be blaming the black community for its problem. And I really don't want to be doing I, that. I, I but I'm trying to stay in touch with the real world. Speaking to that, I mean, this is one of the things that Roland Fryer in his recent study, I know you, you know Roland Fryer, for the listener who's, who's unaware, a very brilliant young Harvard economist. He won the was considered like the Nobel Prize for under 35s in economics. Uh, the John Bates Clark Medal awarded annually to an outstanding economist under the age of 40. Fryer, a former student of mine, I'm proud to be able to say, was the first African-American to win that award. Uh, and he deserved it uh, very much for uh, his uh, brilliant research across a half dozen different areas of social policy. And I, I'd like to come in a little bit later to his work on education, which I think is really interesting. But just yeah. a study he published, which was trying to, to, an attempt to, to, to get an analysis, a handle on the, the likelihood of violence occurring when there were interactions between the police and African-Americans and white suspects and, what, and whatever. His conclusions were, and I think that it's been missed a little bit on both sides, that there was actually a considerably more higher likelihood that there would be, shall we say, a certain level of violence if the suspect was an African-American. say so I think it was 28% higher that they would put their hands on the suspect, that he would be put to the ground, that he would be handcuffed even if he wasn't charged afterwards, etc. However, when it came to fatal shootings, he found that there, that there was a, not a, a pretty reasonably uh, reasonable number, a higher statistical probability that if somebody was going to be fatally shot, that if you're white, you're more likely to be fatally shot than if you were an African-American. Now, when I talked about this with people, I was met with just that, that can't be true. What was your, what, how, do you, how, do you, how do you assess? Well, well let, me, let me just explain a little bit more about what he found um, with respect to the first point that you made that force short of deadly force was more likely, at least 25% or so more likely to be used against African-Americans. It's a very, very robust finding. Uh, it's not in any particular data set. He's got a half dozen different data sets, national surveys of uh, citizens about uh, 
about uh, their encounters with police, uh, administrative data reported by police and so forth and so on in a half dozen different jurisdictions in the United States. It does seem to be true that police are more likely to put their hands on a citizen if the citizen is black, other things equal. With respect to the use of deadly force, he's talking about police shooting. He has one city, it's Houston. Yes. Uh, what makes his study unique and very valuable is that he makes an effort to catalog cases where shootings might have occurred but did not. Okay. Okay. So he's able to control for the circumstances under which officer and citizen encounter each other. Time of day, was the officer called to the scene with a report of a crime? Was the citizen resisting arrest? Was the citizen uh, armed? What, what, uh, part of town did the encounter occur in, in terms of surrounding circumstances. He's able to control for that. In some of the encounters, there's no shooting. That's a zero. There's nothing that happens. In some of the encounters, there's a shooting. That's a one. So he's looking, are the ones more likely to happen, controlling for the nature of the encounter when the citizen is black. And in the data from Houston, he finds that that's not the case. Uh, he, he finds, in fact, that the whites are uh, as you point out, about 25% more likely to be victims of the police shooting, uh, holding constant the other circumstances of the encounter uh, than our Blacks. He was quite surprised by that finding. It's one study, it's one city. It does not pronounce on the generic issue of policing in America, but it's certainly informative about that issue because it is the uh, you know, one of the very few efforts to get granular data that allows you to ask the question. It's a study which demands other studies to be done. Indeed. Now there are, um, it should be mentioned, there are concerns. Uh, one concern is that you only know about these encounters because the police have reported them to you. They may not report honestly about the encounters because they may want to make themselves look good. Sure. Uh, not all police departments are open to allowing researchers to come in and examine their records. It may be that the departments that let you in are the ones who know that they are likely to come out looking pretty good. Uh, he can't do anything about that. You can only analyze the data that you've got. Uh, another criticism is you base your analysis on encounters between the police and citizens. And you say, given that there's an encounter between them, there is no more likelihood that the blacks will be fired on than the whites would have been. But the police decide whether or not there's an encounter. And they may decide to encounter blacks much more frequently, even when blacks are not threatening. Mm -hmm. In which case, the fact that they fire on those blacks that they encounter less frequently is not itself particularly interesting, mm -hmm. since the blacks that they're encountering are on average less threatening, this kind of idea. Sure. Um, and to which his response is a pretty good one, I think. He says, in the Houston case, the vast majority of the encounters were the police responding to 911 calls where they were called to the scene of an incident, not where they were simply cruising around grabbing people at random or at their discretion. So I think he's probably pretty good on that point. I think on the point about selective uh, police uh, access to their data, there's that's just a very you know, uh, inescapable difficulty in, in trying to do empirical research on a question like this. But it's, it, as you know, his study has been very, very controversial because it goes against the narrative. Sure. One of the things I, I, I wanted to get your, your, your sense of was this. What I, I, I adverted to before is that 
the, this cult, the cultural power of the United States. Yeah. And which is undeniable. I, we have to go through this liturgy almost when we say these things. I, of course, don't deny that there are racists in Ireland. There are probably racists in, posi in positions of power and authority in Ireland. There are going to be people who, because of the race, whatever that race happens to be, are going to suffer from disadvantage or are going to be abused. That I don't <coughs> However, according to most of the metrics of, that have been done over the last 20, 30 years, it, it hasn't, xenophobia is not a problem here. We had a massive economic crash uh, around a decade ago. And even in this period where there's massive reentrenchment of the welfare system and all that, racial politics didn't get any purchase. Anti-immigrant, anti-foreigner, I don't even mean racial, I mean anti-foreigner politics got no purchase at all. Nobody could make uh, any, any hay while that sun was shining. So while I'm not saying that there isn't an issue here, it's not if you're going to write the top five problems facing Ireland today. However, it has become part of the narrative that we are importing a certain type of analysis here about this nature, white privilege, awareness of whiteness. Um, the government is now paying uh, for members of the government to go through unconscious bias training, this kind of thing. And my concern is that in a country where you don't necessarily have a historical cultural indigenous problem of race that you, you will have had because of historical cultural issues in other countries. If you introduce, if you start to become incredibly interested in it, once upon a time, not that long ago, it was regarded as a really positive thing where People of my generation who had children in, in the United States or in, or in cities like London or Paris would say, do you know what, my kids, they're in a school, they're in a kindergarten, and they're actually colorblind. They genuinely haven't noticed that that little girl is Vietnamese or that little boy is Algerian or that little, you know, and this was considered to be a good thing. We're now told that that's, a, that's not, that's naive, that's bad, that's playing into privilege. And we have to be constantly, continually aware of race. It seems to me that this is a, I, if you have a group of people, if you're telling them to feel guilty and 10 or 15 or 20% of them already feel pretty disengaged and disenfranchised and are not doing that well, and they don't feel privileged, and you're telling them that they are privileged and they are guilty, that this is, if you wanted to make racists, this is not a bad way to go about doing it. Am I off the wall here, or do you have a sense? I've been thinking along these lines, as you've described for quite a while now. I've been thinking that if you keep telling people that they're white, <laughs> they will begin to take you seriously at some point. As for example, this argument here in the United States that we will soon, within decades, become a majority-minority country that whites will be a minority of the population. Uh, once you add up the Blacks and the uh, Latino, Hispanic, and the Asian and the Native American, uh, Pacific Islander uh, ethnics, 
you will have more than 51%. You will have more than 50%. And I thought, and then people crow about this. They celebrate it. They long for the day. Um, and I thought, well, suppose I were in this minority, this soon to be minority, uh, might I not begin to think that I have interests that need to be protected? Uh, now, I may well have thought that without anyone crowing about the majority minority, there are whites who are thinking of that without any provocation. Mm -hmm. But certainly, you encourage that way of thinking, don't you? When when you uh, when you categorize and you cut and you dice and you measure and you quantify and you compare uh, along those lines. Uh, so, yes, I, I, I do worry about that. I worry also about the loss of this sense of transcendent ethical uh, requirement that, uh, that we should be colorblind. Now, I understand that in saying that, I'm, I'm not giving a description of the way people actually are. Of course, people are not, quote, colorblind. They're not indifferent to these aspects of, of social existence. I mean, uh, we don't marry without restraint across racial lines. We do to some degree, but we largely are marrying within these groups. Um, we, we have cultural differences and so on. Uh, we, we are aware of each other's uh, ethnic racial uh, identity. Uh, it's not without any meaning to us. But as a normative matter, as a matter of what we should strive for, as a kind of ideal of what is the good, um, the, the notion that uh, I would not in, imbue the superficial traits of a human being with you know, anything uh, approaching uh, profound significance, this seems to me to be the right idea. And certainly as a political idea, this is the position that Justice Clarence Thomas, the conservative African-American Supreme Court justice here in the United States has mm -hmm. developed over the last decades in his jurisprudence as a political and constitutional matter of people standing before the state, you know, that, that we would look beyond their ethnic racial categories and strive to uh, govern ourselves in such a way that we did not give any credence or significance to these characteristics. This seems to me to be the right idea. But it is an idea that is losing, uh, losing traction or maybe has lost. I, I don't know if, if, we could, if we can come back from this. Martin Luther King Jr., the iconic figure, the great historical figure, uh, his uh, memory now has been practically uh, transformed from the man who gave this speech in 1963 where he had a dream, I have a dream, King's dream, my four little children will one day live in a country where they'll be judged by, uh, not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. This kind of idea where black and white will walk hand in hand, this kind of idea. It's now quaint. It is to the sophisticated contemporary sensibility and anachronism, an old idea for a different time, not for our time. And I think I know the reason, Michael, I think I know the reason why. Mm -hmm. The reason why is affirmative action. The, the reason why is a defense of policies that are compensatory, favoring uh, African-Americans and others, uh, even when their objective performance in competitive venues uh, doesn't, doesn't uh, work out so well. Getting into the most elite colleges, being hired for the best jobs. 
diversity and inclusion has come to mean any disparity in the presence of African-Americans is ipso facto evidence of institutional failure. It can't be that African-Americans ourselves have simply not measured up to whatever the competitive venue might be for reasons that may be historical, that may have many complex causes, but nevertheless. Um, and, and the crit criticism of affirmative action, the criticism of affirmative action is rooted in an idea of people being colorblind of the society not putting too much weight on race. But I can't implement my compensatory intervention, affirmative action, if I don't keep track of people's race. And I, I think the desire to compensate African-Americans in competitive venues through explicit preference has now trumped the moral authority of the of the idea that Martin Luther King made famous in 1963. That, that raised two, two questions I'd like there. One, first of all, is that, is there an element, let's do the economics on this. Is that because affirmative action is a great deal for a certain section of the African-American community, but not, but fundamentally on effects doesn't do anything for say the bottom third percentile, there's three bottom three decimals. Well, I think that's true. So that the people who are the advocates, the, the people who are politically powerful, for them it's a good deal. So they want, they're, they're interested in keeping going. I, I, I heard you, I think you referring to, you were talking about the you know, Sanders mismatch theory uh, and how this affects. And I think, yeah. and I hope I'm not wrong, but very embarrassed, that you said, talking about this, that the effects actually become more pronounced when you get down to Kansas, Kansas, K, Kansas City University, as opposed to Harvard or Princeton, which I yeah. hadn't heard before. Could you explain that? Well, okay, so this is Richard Sander. He's a law professor at uh, the University of California, Los Angeles. And he's developed uh, this theory over many years and attempted to, um, prove it with data on law school admissions in particular. Um, he has a book with Stuart Taylor uh, called, I think it's called Mismatch. Uh, and then there's a subtitle and it explores this question. The mismatch is if uh, every institution wants to have 10% African-American amongst their students, and if these institutions are very exclusive so that without any preference or benefit, 10% of the population qualifying would not be black, then uh, the institutions will lower the criteria for selecting blacks relative to whites in order to meet their 10% their target. And this creates a cascading effect because the institutions are not all equally desirable. The Harvard and the Stanford and the uh, you know, so on the most uh, exclusive universities, Columbia right. University and so on, they will be, it's a musical chairs problem. Too many people looking for black students, too few students who qualify. Sure. The schools that are most uh, desirable are the ones that are going to have the easiest chance of getting the black students. And as you move down the hierarchy of, of the universities, they're in a much weaker competitive position and they have to compromise their standards by even more in order to uh, reach their goal of including uh, enough uh, students of color. 
Um, and this means that the, the margin of disparity between the average uh, admittee who is a black student and who is a white student will get bigger the lower down the hierarchy of institutions you go. So at a place like Brown, where I teach, or at a Harvard or a Columbia in the Ivy League here in the United States, the black students and the white students may not be exactly well matched in terms of their qualification, but they will be closer, much closer than you would find at a, a mid-ranked college somewhere out in the Midwest of the country. I think it was Walter Williams made the point, I, 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 I don't know, is this correct? That you find that where race has become the primary marker of diversity, that what <coughs> actually the outcome is that yes, you, get, you, you can fill racial quotas, but you'll get second and third generation children of architects, lawyers, and doctors who, who are upper middle class, living on the Upper East Side in Manhattan, and are culturally far more similar to their Chotan Andover white counterparts than say, for example, somebody from the, the coal mines of West Virginia or from Appalachia. I think that is broadly true and it's to be expected. Um, amongst those in the, um, in the group of African-Americans who are going to be able to even get close to qualifying for admission to a place like Harvard or Brown, there will be an overrepresentation of privileged people because they will have to have had the experiences earlier in their life that prepared them for this competition. The disadvantaged African-Americans who are going to the failing inner city schools that uh, so many of them uh, attend who don't have resourceful parents who are themselves educated people who can assist in their development who are pretty much on their own and are buffeted about by all the various snares and temptations and uh, 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 negative influences that uh, they are affected by, those kids don't have a chance of getting close to getting into a place like Harvard. So when I compare black students and uh, white students at Harvard, there may be some gaps in their uh, academic uh, qualification, but they're gonna be much more similar class-wise. And I don't deny that the black students will be on average less well-off than the white students. These are very, very privileged people, mm -hmm. but they will be much more similar uh, social class-wise than the typical African-American person picked out of the population at random. We're obviously talking here principally a, a, about about race, but we're also living in a moment where race is simply perhaps the largest and the most uh, obvious of the, shall we say, of the intersectional uh, identities. But there is a, in, within progress, the progressive movement of the United States, which is coming here also, or is here, issues about sexuality, about gender, about ability, about all these things. Sure. Are, are, there are two, two observations or, or questions. Firstly, it seems to me that it, what's if you withdraw from the idea of what I think used to be called the superordinate identity, where you could be 
you could be a Methodist or a Southern Baptist or uh, from Texas, or you could be Hispanic or you could be black, but you're, everybody ultimately participated in the higher identity of American, which bound you together as an idea. That you, everybody has a series of identities, but then you, you can all come together and share in a, in a, in a, in a higher identity. That if you're an African-American, the, the history, the 20th century is the American century. And I think that in many ways, we'll have to say that the, the culture of the 20th century, like j jazz is the, is the great art form of the 20th century, the new art form of the 20th century. And that is, it seems to be an African-American art form. Um, in dance, in the culture of the, icon the iconography of professional sports, people like Jackie Robinson are these huge mythic figures. America is not America without black Americans. America is incomplete. America is less. Yeah. Um, but I, there's a, a, an American writer, Chanahisi Coates, who I think writes beautifully, but there seems to me to be a desperate lack of and, and nihilism in and not nihilism but he, he I, I read an extract of a piece he was writing to his son i remember thinking why would you write this to your child yeah I know. there's no sense there seems to be no sense of the achievement of what black america has done but also that in some sense america has cooperated in that achievement or am i naive am i being naive here I, no, I, I don't think so. Um, there was a, a great culture critic named Albert Murray. Albert Murray, an African-American, mid-20th century. I don't know when he died exactly, uh, maybe 20 years ago or so, maybe more. Uh, but he, he was a jazz critic, amongst other things, and a literature guy. He was a, a man of letters. Uh, his book is called Omni-Americans. And his vision about African-Americans is, in a way, that we are quintessentially American. We are, er, you are American, you know. Of course, the native people of the Western Hemisphere are the native people of the land. But there is no homeland for Black Americans. This is our homeland. We come from various streams of African culture in the uh in the middle passage in the uh in the passage from slavery but our sensibilities our language our music our prayers they are forged here forged in the crucible of slavery and early emancipation uh and the country itself the music and not just jazz of course look at popular music in the united states even look at george gershwin and people like that you know who are profoundly influenced by the American uh, idiom, uh, by the African-American idiom. Rock and roll is... Uh, exactly, very much so. Blues, very much so. Uh, and hip-hop has had this global impact that... Uh, Amy Jackson was not white. No, she wasn't. Uh, so, he, so, so this is a sensibility which I hear you groping towards, which I very much endorse. Um, and as far as Coates is concerned, uh, I, 
I think the interesting question about Ta-Nehisi Coates is why are his books so popular? What niche is he filling? What demand for narrative is, his, is he supplying the supply for? And um, I think it has a lot to do with elite, liberal, white American sensibility with people who run the publishing houses and edit the newspapers and uh, are writing the speeches for the progressive political candidates and are writing the scripts for the Hollywood movies and are the students that I teach here at a place like Brown University. Um, and uh, it is oblique, I agree, right to his son, there's nothing here for you. America is implacably opposed to your very humanity. You must not believe in the American dream. You must not let your guard down. You must not relax. Every event in your life should be interpreted through this narrative lens of a racial oppression, of a denial of your humanity. Uh, I, I think, you know, not only is it ahistorical in the sense that it's objectively an inaccurate assessment of the circumstance, uh, but it's also soul killing, it seems to me. It, it invites your child, his child, to be forever balled up in a fury with the world, forever on a, a hair trigger sensibility to be offended, um, forever uh, angry and, and sullen and alienated from his country. This is our country. It's not as if we have someplace else to go. It's, it, it, it's not as if there are other pastures that are being entertained here. So what you do is you condemn yourself and your progeny to perpetual self-isolation from the collective enterprise, which is the United States of America. And you do this even as tens of millions of non-Europeans are coming into the society from the south and east of Asia and from Latin America. <clears throat> and making their lives here, and, and giving the lie to the pessimism of the Ta-Nehisi Colts. You, know, you might be like, <coughs> on, on, uh, coming in from Nigeria, uh, as black as anybody else, and they're doing, indeed. doing very, very, very well indeed. I just want to very quickly go back to a point you raised there about uh, who are those books for? I don't know if you saw the statement made by the, uh, the head of the Portland NAACP who said that whatever this had started off as, it has now become basically a white spectacle. Do you think I didn't see that. I didn't see that, but I'm glad to hear it. I wonder, is there an element of what's going on both in these, in these outbursts and demonstrations, but also in a broader sense, that while there are, I'm sure, good actors and some people of good intent, there are also other people who frankly don't really give a damn about the material well-being of African-Americans in the bottom two or three deciles. But the, that use advocacy and use people in this area, like Lenin, that Lenin, the Lenin's phrase, the use, they are useful idiots to be used to, to advance a particular progressive vision, which is a divisive intersectionality, that some of these people really are just, this, this race is a useful tool. Well, I think you flatter them with the comparison to the Bolsheviks, because they at least they at least knew what they were doing. They they knew what they wanted. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the opportunistic and you know seizing upon chaos in order to foment, and you know the strategic use of violence and the kind, you know, 
on behalf of, well, there was a doctrine. There was, they were Marxists. They, they had a coherent, yes. if problematic, but nevertheless coherent historical vision. Uh, das Kapital is a serious work. It, you know, all three volumes, you know, that those are, uh, uh, it, that's a serious engagement with history. Uh, these are anarchists that we're talking about here, or they're, they're uh, pouting uh, adolescents who are thumbing their noses at their, at their elders, um, or, or they're half-educated uh, uh, radic radicals, radicals, not radicals on behalf of, a, as I say, a coherent political program, but, but radicals in the sense that they don't like capitalism. I mean, you know, what, what kind of argument is that? You don't like capitalism. I mean, compared to what? Did you see what happened in the 20th century? Were you paying any attention? You know? So, so they are opportunists seizing upon this uh, this uh, sense of, uh, of frustration in uh, with with uh, in the African American community with uh, law enforcement to to and and to make a a more general critique of the society. The other thing I think to bear in mind is Donald. Trump is the president. Right. He won the election in 2016. And anything that he's for, right-thinking people have to be against. Okay. okay so, if, so if he's for maintaining order in the cities, right-thinking people have to be against it. If he will be helped by uh, attacking the rioters, then we, you know, if, if he will gain from opening up these schools for uh, matriculation again in September, then we have to be against, there's a, there's a sense of that that's going on, I think. I heard, <coughs> recently I, I heard a, a snippet of an interview with Morgan Freeman and the journalist asked him, what, what can we do to solve the problem of racism in America? And his response was, let's, let's stop talking about it. And it reminds me that. It reminded me of a quote, uh, a piece of advice which is attributed to Moynan, Daniel Moynan, to President Clinton, yeah. where he said that the race, the race question in the United States could do with a period of benign neglect. Do you think that that's a, is it possible or, or would it, could it be actually a good idea or is it just a nonsense? No, I, I think it could be a good idea, but I doubt that it's a feasible, uh, achievable goal. I think the genie is out of the bottle and you will not put the genie back in the bottle again. But I think, you know, I, this uh, police issue is one of them where I say, why is it that every time a civilian who happens to be black is killed by a police officer who happens to be white, we have the event white police officer kills black man. Why is it that? Yes, the police officer is white and the man is black, but is that the event? We could choose not to report it that way. So for example, when the criminal is black and the victim is white, seldom will you see a newspaper report, black criminal invades the suburban home of the couple no. who are white and beats them and takes their jewelry. You won't see that, you'll see simply there was a robbery. There's a reason for that. <clears throat> we we don't tout the race of the of the criminal and when the criminal is black because we don't want to encourage racism in the in the population. Yeah. And in fact, and in fact, if you look at the statistics, white criminals attacking and beating and robbing and killing black or white people, that black citizens killing, robbing, beating, raping, and attacking white people 
happens every day in the United States. You could fill up the newspaper with those reports if that was what you were inclined to do. We don't do that. And it's a good thing too, yes. that we don't do it. We don't see mobs of citizens in front of the courthouse demanding justice for the white victim. Mm -hmm. But we see it demanding justice for the black victim. Now, be careful what you do because you may create precedents that you cannot undo. And I think the racialization of this discourse is one of those things that we should be careful what we do. Um, so even if Morgan Freeman is, you know, wishful thinking a little bit that we would ever get to that point, I think he's looking in the right direction. Well, uh, Professor uh, Laurie, I'm aware I, 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 I've, I've stolen more than I was supposed to. So I'm going to thank you again. I'm hoping that maybe if I, if I leave very quickly now, we, you may even agree to come back and talk to us another time. I'd like to thank you <laughs> for joining us here on TRSI and stay safe and goodbye.